Welcome to the Rock Podcast. The church at Ephesus was reeling from abusive false teachers who had poisoned the congregation with heretical teaching. Now it was time to get back on track, teaching the gospel and making necessary reforms to bring the church back to health. Here in chapter 2, Paul reminds Timothy it all starts with prayer and for the men and women of the fellowship to serve faithfully in their specific callings from God. Here now is Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Prayer and Gender Roles. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for being here with us by your Spirit. And Lord, we can't do anything without your help. So we ask your blessing. We acknowledge that this, this word didn't come through any man, but it came as God breathed. Uh, it is the inspired word of God sent to save us and to bless us and to set our hearts free. So help us this morning by your spirit, open our eyes to see the wonderful things you have planned for us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, so when you write a letter to someone, you have a reason for doing so. And Paul the Apostle had a good one for writing young pastor Timothy, which of course is his first letter to Timothy, Uh, He was left in charge of a large church there in Ephesus, perhaps the most significant church of the first century there. He was left in charge of this large church that was large, but it had even larger problems than we saw last week. Now, the church of Ephesus had leaders that had gone sideways in their teaching. They started teaching all kinds of crazy doctrine and really throwing the church into uh, a lot of chaos and confusion. And now the letter started off by encouraging Timothy um, to do uh, some fast and furious work with these leaders to shut them down. Uh, Zero tolerance for any kind of false teaching there. So uh, he needed to get the church up and running, back on track, and spiritually healthy. Now because the church had been exposed to really bad teaching and false teaching at that, there were a lot of other areas within the church that suffered. And as a result, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are instructions to get a church that is not doing well, that is struggling back on track. And so really, it's a treasure chest for pastors in particular because it's saying, here's what a healthy church should look like Here are the ministries that should be happening. Here's the leadership, what it looks like, the qualifications. All of that is in 1 Timothy. This is how God expects the congregation to function. So the key verse, we showed it last week, from chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, Paul writing Timothy, I'm writing you these instructions, 1 Timothy. So that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation 
of the truth. And so what a, a rich source of valuable information we have in First Timothy. You know, it's not how a pastor thinks the church should operate or a denomination. It's, it's already given to us. God uh, is Lord of the church. He's the head of the body, as Colossians says. And so we follow his dictates. It's his household, and we try to do things scripturally that, that would be uh, pleasing to God. So as we saw last week, just little context before we dive into chapter 2, we saw that Timothy um, had to gather his courage to fight the good fight, you know, and... Um, to confront and silence those false teachers in the church who were described as just uh, doing meaningless babble, mired in confusing controversies, and they reduced Christian living down to rules and regulations. You got to do this. You can't do that. You got to do this. You can't do that. And it was a, a real nightmare there. Uh, teaching wise. And so Timothy was charged there in the first chapter to teach sound doctrine, put an end to the false teachers, and just to preach the gospel. Now here in chapter two, Paul continues on with some instruction, uh, with some necessary reforms for the church. And the two parts in chapter two, one would be the importance of prayer, and two would be the importance of the differing roles of women and men in the church fellowship, which promises to be a lively discussion. All right, so (laughs) here we go. Uh, Let's go to the call to prayer, which comes first in the first seven verses. So I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and a, and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So let's pause there. So part one to getting uh, a struggling church back on track is a call to prayer. And that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, it's time to put a stop to the bad teaching and then for the church to get whole again and nothing will bring spiritual healing like prayer. So the Holy Spirit turns Paul's thoughts to the worship service and congregational life and how the church can get back in the game, as it were. So what a better way to get on track, to refocus, and uh, to get all fired up again than to, to pray together. And here's what they're supposed to be doing. Well, first and foremost, he says, once you've stopped the source of the problem with the false teachers, now everybody just needs to come together and pray. They had lost their way. When you have bad teaching in the pulpit, you don't have people living the gospel anymore. There's no more fuel. There's no more, no more, no more instruction. There's no more guidance. There's, there's no more food, 
You know, we're supposed to be feeding the people of God with the word of God. So there's no focus. There's no mission. There's no fire. Uh, They're just sitting there listening to these long, boring, meaningless lectures about do this, don't do this, do that. You know, the Bible says that they were making things up, calling them myths and fables. No wonder they have to pray and look at the way they have to pray. He uses four of the seven terms for prayer in the New Testament right here. Prayers, requests, intercession, and thanksgiving. In other words, throw yourselves into prayer. Give yourselves over to prayer. Reconnect with that life flow. In John 15, Jesus compares life with him with a vine and branches. And he says, you guys are the branches. I'm the vine. When you abide in me, when you pray, when you commune with me, when you live in close contact with me, I am like the the vine that supplies you with the life-giving saps, uh, the the life energy to live the Christian life. And so there's a call to prayer because the church is hurting. Uh, Christians are stumbling. They don't know what they believe anymore. They're confused because the guys in the pulpit and the women in the pulpit, as we'll see later, they're confusing everybody. And so that's been put to a stop. And now he says, everybody... Pray, all kinds of prayers. And he lists those four words there. It's a similar thing he tells the Ephesian Christians. He says in chapter 6 and verse 18. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep keep on praying for all things. Of the saints. And the word saints there is just a word for everyday ordinary Christians. It means to be set apart, set apart from the sinful world, set apart from your own sin, and set apart to God. That's all that word means. But, but look at that. All kinds of prayers and requests for all kinds of people in every situation and occasion. And then, by the way, if you didn't get it, keep praying for all the Christians. And so there's a reason behind that. Mostly when I think of prayer, most Christians think of prayer, um, we think in terms of ourselves. And we all struggle with prayer. I wrote in the bulletin, I I know my own heart and life, I need to pray more. We all are uh, convicted about our inadequate prayer lives, and and there may be a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is, is because we don't pray biblically. We don't pray like praying the gospel. Uh, we pray tiny little prayers in self-centered ways. Lord, you know, bless me here, and I need help with this, and me, myself, and I kind of prayers for the most part. But this isn't what Paul's saying. He's saying there's a gospel out there. There, there Jesus Christ is going to appear any second. A trumpet is going to sound. And the dead in Christ shall be raised, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord. And then the day of God's wrath on this world, seven last years. Revelation chapter 6 through 18 outlines 21 judgments that are going to fall on a Christ-rejecting world. Pray on all occasions. 
Pray for everyone. Pray for the Christians. Pray with requests and thanksgivings and intercessions. Let your prayers be missional. Be driven by God's heart. What's important to God right now? Why don't we pray what's on God's heart? And what's on God's heart is the salvation of the souls of the world. He came to seek and save the lost. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is what the gospel is about. It hasn't been preached at Ephesus for a good long time, and so they are floundering in their lives because they're floundering in prayer. They don't even know how to pray anymore. They don't pray for their city. They don't pray for the gospel all around the world. They don't even know if they believe in heaven and hell anymore because of the false teachers. You see? So he says, pray together. Pray together. The false teachers dried up their souls, created doubts with their boring, endless babbling. And so prayer took a back seat in the gospel. And so he says, listen, the reason you pray like this is here in verses 2 through 6. He says, we make the gospel attractive. Now notice what he says there, right there in your text. He says, the object of your praying ought to, to translate into lives that make the gospel attractive, that we would live peaceable and godly and holy lives. In other words, the point of praying like this is, is that we, by our lives, might present the gospel by the way we live. That people would look at us and say, hey, what a, what a peaceful life you enjoy. Look at how you handle all your troubles. And I listen to how you talk. And I see the peace in your life. And I want to know Christ. That's the point of all of this praying. Is not only to see God work in the world. But in us and through us. That they'll look at us and want what we have. And that would be Christ. And that they would pass out of death. And condemnation. And a destiny that involves eternal loss. And come to have everlasting life. Here's why you pray the gospel. Here's why you broaden your prayers. Here's why you pray like a missionary, because you are one. And here's what he says in 4 through 6. When you pray like this, it makes God pleased because you're sharing his heart. This is a paraphrase. We join in God's work because God, our Savior, wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And there's only one way, one mediator, Jesus Christ. No one you know has any hope unless they come to know Jesus. That's why he just said, pray for everybody with requests and thanksgivings and intercessions and prayers of all kinds on all occasions and keep on praying. Why? He says, because this is God's heart. He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So, so you're living the gospel and you're praying the gospel. And when you're praying the gospel, you're thinking in a mission-minded kind of way. You go to work. You're no longer irritated by certain people because you've been praying for them. Pray for everyone, the people you like, the people you don't like, the people who are fun to hang around, the people who are annoying. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> this thing, yeah. Now, 
when you're praying for somebody, your heart is softer. This is what Paul is asking. Pray like you actually believe the gospel that you claim to know. Do you really believe that anyone who does not have the Son shall not see life for the wrath of God abides on him? John 3.36, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that there's an eternal lake of fire and, quote, whosoever name was not written in the Lamb's book of life is tossed into that lake of fire where the devil and the false prophet and the Antichrist shall be? Do you believe that? If you say yes, and you're not concerned in praying for all of these people and going into work and school and the places that you go without a sense of mission or prayerfulness for these lost souls, then something's not connecting. He says, pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers for everybody, requests and thanksgivings and intercessions. Because God's heart, that's what God's doing. That's what God's up to. That's what's important to him. And we want to do what's important to him. Pray for everybody because God loves everybody. Pray for everybody because everybody needs to be saved. When we are praying properly, we are reminding ourselves what we should be doing, what's really important, and what really matters to God. Amen? All right, so the church at Ephesus is drifting. It's really quite useless. It's unproductive. It's because of bad teaching and meaningless babble. Uh, It was time to get back in the game, as I said, so begin with prayer. Now, transition. As the congregation comes back online, as it were, uh, regains its focus uh, on the work at hand, Paul turns his attention now by the Holy Spirit to men and women and their roles and their particular problems within the church fellowship. Now, heads up. Because the false teachers had stirred up trouble, really, for both genders, both genders were causing some disruptions in the worship service and hindering uh, the, the, the worship services and the fellowship. Now, first of all, let's talk about the men. The men found themselves handling the fallout caused by the false teachers with anger, frustration, arguing, fighting in the pews, the whole nine yards. You know what? The false teachers came in and split everybody up. People were being excommunicated, rightfully so, but they had friends and supporters and families and there were, everybody's taking sides. And how did the guys handle it? The men in the church, the Christian men in the church. Well, it was testosterone to the rescue. <laughs> All right? So they're up in everybody's faces. Oh, you would side with him. And you know what? You know what you are? You're this and you're that and all of that crazy stuff. So he says, I want men, first of all, everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. And now there's a, there's a word picture there because Jewish men prayed with their hands up, all right? And they often still do in many parts of the world. They pray like this. We worship like that as well. Now, the word picture is this. No longer raising your clenched fists in anger, 
but raise your hands in prayer to the Lord instead. And that's what he's saying for these men. They're frustrated. Their friends have been duped and the brothers are taking sides and the guys are just plain mad. So they've turned up the volume. Everybody's on edge and uh, they're getting into f- people's faces, tempers, arguing, fighting, threatening and all of that. And Paul's saying, brothers, listen, there's a better way. You're supposed to be leaders. You're not being part of the answer by harboring this anger. You're part of the problem now. You can't be able, you can't worship God. You can't be sitting there mad at the false prophets, mad at the supporters, mad at everything, and then raise your hands to God in prayer. Those hands, your text says, need to be raised from a heart that has been purified and is holy. You cannot have fellowship with a God of love when your heart is filled with bitterness, unforgiveness, and anger. It doesn't work that way. And that's what he's saying here. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, that famous word to us. He says, listen, you've heard it said that people long ago don't murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, I bring it up a notch. Whoever is angry, angry men with his brother will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to his brother, you moron, is, that's what... (laughs) Sorry, that's what it means. That's what it means. (laughs) You moron is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. It's a serious thing. And so what is he saying? He's saying if, if you find yourself, you know, in some kind of conflict and you're, you you, you have a part to play in it. You can make it right. Before you write your check, just, just don't even bother. Just turn around in the parking lot and get right with God because you can't do this and this. It doesn't work together. And so that's exactly what Paul's trying to say. And husbands, prayers are hindered because of insensitivity and, and rudeness. Second Peter 3 and verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect. So the weaker partner and his heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Christians often think this is the only thing that matters, especially in the good old USA, because we're Western thinkers. We are the individuals that matter. God says, this matters to me. And if this is out of whack, in Romans chapter 12, it says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. You can't do their job too, but as your part you can do, and if you're part of the problem, don't bother the Lord saying, come to me and be praying as if everything's cool while you're being rude and sensitive and harsh with your wife. The Lord is like, I don't hear you, I don't hear you. I don't hear you. Fingers in the ear. It's time to adjust my ear buddy too at the same time. (laughs) It's important. He says, get rid of it. I love what the Lord, how he makes things so easy. Get rid of anger, bitterness, and all forms of malice and slander. How? Get rid of it. 
Get rid of it. Anger management may help. Sometimes, sometimes it helps to understand why we're angry and, and be told ways that we can get rid of it. But long story short, just get rid of it. It's not helpful. You're not hurting the false prophets. You're hurting yourself and your family and you're, you're rendering your ministry ineffective because of the hidden bitterness and the harshness and the anger. He says, men... Just get rid of that. That's not right. Now it's time to move to the ladies. And all the men said? (laughs) Now to the ladies, a slightly more complicated issue. I love you. (laughs) All right, hold on. Now, let me give you some background before we dive in. Many women in this church were supportive of the false teachers. We'll see that for a fact later in 1 Timothy. Not only are they supportive, but they've been emboldened to actually teach alongside from the pulpit. Now, in their newfound prominence at the church, they're in front of the congregation. They become very showy and distractive in their dress and appearance. And now they need a word of correction. So, first of all, the problem was how they were dressing. And the second problem was how they were serving. So let's talk about the easy part first, how they were dressing. Verse 9 and 10. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now let's pause there. So I already told you why they, they, there, there are some excesses, but maybe it'd be helpful to know the spiritual climate, cultural climate of Ephesus. It was a wicked city. Uh, the goddess there that ruled the day, Diana. And the images of Diana are very immoral. She was the goddess of fertility, all right? And so they had a religion there and temples where they combined sexual immorality with the worship. The whole place reeked of sensuality and sex was worshiped. These women would get saved. They'd hear the gospel and they'd give their hearts to Jesus. They'd become new creations and they'd come in to the fellowship And they needed a word of instruction, some of them. All right? And so that's what's happening. There are three words that the Holy Spirit uses to to bring a word to his ladies. And he says, ladies, modesty, decency, and propriety. The word modesty, and it's pretty self-explanatory, and it's usually that way in modern congregations. Uh, Women, they get it. You know, and, and we're just going line by line through here. Modesty, thoughtful consideration in the way we present ourselves in public, purposely not drawing inordinate attention to ourselves. And so, of course, men are listening as well, but we are talking about the ladies. Now, one uh, person said, and I thought it was funny, sexy should be reserved for places other than the church sanctuary or the youth group. Amen? (laughs) Moving along. Uh, 
Decency, the word in your text there means letting the respect for God and the holiness of the worship environment help us to choose wisely. The third word, propriety. What is suitable, appropriate? What makes sense? Am I overdressed? Am I underdressed? You know, I was thinking uh, at the courthouse there in Santa Rosa, there's a big sign that says, no tank tops, no shorts, no exception. This is court. Propriety, right? It's propriety and a lot of common sense. Christian women were being exhorted to care about their appearance and care about what their appearance was saying about them and their hearts. An immodest person uh, has some issues in their heart, right? And so... uh, to dress immodestly says there's, there's something of the heart going on and how they are presenting themselves, uh, they are affecting others. And so the Lord wants them to think about the others who might be distracted by the way they're presenting themselves, like men. Men are easily distracted and they are visually wired, all right? Now, I could tell you what it's like to be a guy, women, but you, it won't be very helpful. <laughs> and plus, it, it's not really what you are interested in anyway, right? You don't want to be a guy, right? Well, let me just tell you, if you had 30 seconds in the, in the mind of a guy and, and looked at life the way a man looks out, nobody would ever need to say a word to anybody about modesty, uh, there would be an, an understanding. I read uh, something of an illustration of uh, husband and wife were at a mall and, and the wife was going through all the rack just really intently, you know, and the husband was standing there and clack, 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 clack down the uh, way came a woman who was very uh, um, Attractive, shall we say, and, and his head kind of craned. But she's just looking like this, like this, you know. And then uh, afterwards, he was looking at his wife, and his wife looked up and said, I hope that was worth it. <laughs> it's hard to be a guy in this world. And so uh, the hairstyles. Okay, here's what was going on. With the aristocrats and some of the ladies of the evening, especially, they would braid into their hair. The text really is braided into their hair, the gold and the gems and the pearls, into these fashion statements just with the hairdos. All right. So what you had going on there is the poorer women were feeling excluded and maybe a little bit jealous. Uh, But then the women were also what they were doing was competing with one another as well. I know that doesn't happen in this church or, or any ladies you know, but uh, that, that was happening out there. And so here's somebody who just summed it up rather nicely. Every human being wants to look their best, uh, to take care of themselves and be an attractive person. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with makeup. There's not a prohibition against jewelry or nice clothing or getting your hair done, or your nails, or whatever else your husband appreciates. However, 
the Holy Spirit is talking to women about falling prey to worldly extremes that distract and stumble, rather that Christian women should concentrate instead on what's eternal and unfading, inner beauty and godly character. That's all the Lord is asking for. You know Proverbs 31.30, right? Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Amen? It works with guys too. I don't know if you've read uh, Proverbs 32. Handsome features fade, expensive cars break down, muscles sag, but a guy who loves Jesus will be praised. Amen? Come on. Of course, there's no such thing as Proverbs 32. It's the best thing I could name it. All right. Now, I'm glad you're all in such a good mood. I hope, I hope we stay that way. Now, there, there was an overreach in attire that needed to be corrected, and there's an overreach in ministry role that needed to be corrected. Let's put those verses on the screen, and I'll read them. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and propriety. I have to confess something to you. When I walked in the sanctuary this morning, all I could see was ladies. <laughs> I just thought, do we really have this many ladies who come here? Well, what do you say after reading that? Amen. <laughs> you say, welcome, ladies. There was a woman I met on the back row over there. I said, how long have you been coming to the church? She said, this is my second time. And I went, oh, really? I said, we haven't scared you off thus far. And I, knowing what was in my head. Well, you know, after you read a passage like that, I think the senior pastor should give an associate pastor an opportunity to provide. <laughs> pastor Jim, Pastor Adam. They do a good job. All right, let's get serious. All right. First of all, number one, and we shall keep the text on right to the bitter end because we're going to walk through it line by line and I'm going to try to explain it. Now, my seminary uh, uh, teachers always taught me that here's how you approach the Bible. It's not what you think about the text. It's what the text thinks about you. So we come to God's word because it's God's word. I did not write this. I personally have nothing to do with that. Uh, all right. I just want you to know right now. I didn't think of it. If I were writing it, I might have written something different. All right. It reminds me of the story of a weatherman who says, he says, I get a lot of hate mail. He says, I can't believe it, but I do. He says, I got people uh, threatening me. One guy sent me a noose, right? 
for my bad weather reporting. He said, now this is what I do. I get the data <laughs> and I report it. I make a forecast. I, I can't really do anything about it. Uh, the Doppler radar comes in. I say what that says, you know. And, and he says, I, it's just crazy that people would email me like I have something to do with it. And I, and I was thinking, that would be as crazy as emailing a pastor because you're upset with the forecast, right? This is just a Doppler report, all right? So I'm going to do my best here, all right? Here. Let's start out this way. For nearly 2,000 years, this text uh, was undisputed. There was no controversies. For 1,970 years, there's no record. In the 60s, it began to be a problem. Now, Bob Yarbrough, New Testament professor, Trinity Evangelical Seminary, points out that the flood of different interpretations and controversies that began in the 60s after 1900 plus years of basically one historical viewpoint said this, listen, when opinions and convictions suddenly undergo dramatic alteration, although nothing new has been discovered and the only thing that has dramatically changed is the spirit of the age, it is difficult to avoid the confusion Uh, that the conclusion, rather, that the Spirit has had an important role to play in that shift. Now, the Spirit of the age, right? So we don't bring the Spirit of the age in to to check it out. We just kind of check it out. What does it mean? Let's talk about it. Um, Number one, a woman should learn in quietness and, and full submission. Well, that's a big change from Jewish tradition and Greek culture and Roman culture, all right? A woman should learn. Oh, the gospel brought liberation. Jesus' treatment of women. Jesus' teaching about women. The New Testament teaching on women brought liberation. A woman should learn. This was a new thing. This was a good thing. And in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 18, in Christ there's nothing like male and female, rich man, poor man, but we're all, listen, of equal value. The same blood that sanctifies a man sanctifies a woman. So in Christ there's no distinction that way of worth or value. But it didn't erase gender roles, you see? So there was some confusion. So a woman should learn. In quietness, the word there just means without interruption. Now, part of the problem was the practical setup of the worship service with the ladies on one side and the men on the other side. So during the services, as is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, same problem. The women were interrupting the speaker asking questions, giving their opinions, and kind of, sorry, (laughs) and and kind of arguing a little bit. And Paul says, that's shameful. It's a worship service. The gospel's being preached. If you, quote, if you have questions, ladies, ask your husbands at home. This is part of what's going on here. It's about... uh, not interrupting. A woman should learn without interrupting. So far, so good, right? No problem, right? Now, here we go with the problem. In full submission, it's a military word to fall into rank 
all right? It means serving in your appointed place, respecting the authority structure that God has put in place. Here's the expositor's Bible on this verse. Submission doesn't mean she surrenders her mind or violates her conscience or abandons common sense. Rather, it's an exhortation not to usurp God's design in placing men in the position of teaching the congregation. Submission. Uh, dear ladies, you're, you're certainly not the only ones who have a call to come under and to fall into rank. Men have to fall into rank as well. And with women as well, coming under. Women teachers, women bosses, women police officers. Can you imagine if a woman police officer uh, pulls a guy over and the guy says, she says, step out of the car. And he says, why? I I don't have to. You think you're just better than me because I have to submit to you, right? No. He could get in a lot of trouble that way. Amen? I mean, just the other day, a a lady at the grocery caused me to have to come under. She's a woman. She's at the grocery store, right? I still had to submit. She said, sir. This is the express lane. I said, I know, I'm in a hurry. (laughs) I had to come under, right? Ladies, listen. We have to submit to Christ. Christ submits to God the Father. Within the Trinity, there's submission. Jesus did nothing on his own accord. He says, I fall in under rank under the Father. He does nothing on his own initiative. He submitted. Men are submitted to Christ. And women, in the matters of the home and of the church, come under the husband. Generally speaking, that's how God designed it. And now, you see... For the sake of order and function, not value, God has a flow of delegated authority. So the husband are, uh, husbands are God's servant leaders in the home, and pastors uh, are God's servant leaders in the church. And as I said, it's all about function. Next line. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. First of all, he's saying, I, as opposed to the false teachers, and I, I, as an apostle, by the command of God our Savior, is speaking. So it's authoritative. Now, what does it mean? Clearly, it just means a public worship service, a church setting, an open Bible. A woman should not have an open Bible in front of a man in a public worship service where she reads the text, explains the text, and applies the text to the man because she is pastoring him. And the the Lord, the Holy Spirit is saying to the ladies, this is a job that I wish a man to do. Now, that's the plain teaching of that verse. But women are free to teach other women. In fact, they are commanded to do so, to also teach children, Titus 2. And it is not a prohibition against teaching men in the world. It's not a prohibition to teach men in your careers. It's not even a prohibition to bring a word of instruction uh, privately to a man. 
Priscilla and Aquila take the pastor, Apollos, and take him aside, and her name comes first because she's the prominent one. She brings the word of instruction. Hey, Apollos, listen. Let, let me show you the way it is. That's a good thing. How about uh, Sarah to Abraham? Sarah tells Abraham, listen, this whole Ishmael Hagar thing, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. So God speaks to Abraham, submit, fall in line under your wife's teaching, quote, and do everything she's told you to do about Hagar and Ishmael. So surely she can teach, she has influence, and surely that word, and she must be silent, does not mean zip with nothing coming out. There's a word for that, and it's not that word. This word means peaceable, contented, rested. Of course it doesn't mean that she cannot speak in the church, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul is giving instructions about women who are praying out loud publicly in the worship service and prophesying. They are inspiring. They are speaking. They are singing. They are praising. They are prophesying a word of inspiration and encouragement. So the word does not mean silent. It cannot mean silent because we already know women are speaking in the church. They just simply are not supposed to pastor a man. That is simply all it is right there. And you say, well, 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 what about this and what about that? You know what? I don't run California or the world or the rest of the churches in the world. I'm not responsible for anything outside of this. So this is where I'm responsible. And then that's, I answer to God for this. And, and we just do our best here to put into practice what, what we see here in the scriptures. Amen. All right, so he says, let me give you some reasons for that. Reasons why women should not pastor men. Men should pastor men. Here's the reason. Number one, Adam was formed first, then Eve. All right, so here's what he's saying. He's saying men and women reflect equally the, the, the image of God. But there are different functions, all right? And Adam was formed first, and, and woman was made out of Adam and for man. Adam, listen, weather report, weather report, sunny and mild. <laughs> sunny and mild, I, I've seen a change in the faces, people. All right, listen. Weatherman. Bible. I'm quoting the Bible. I didn't write it. Not my idea. All right? Adam was formed first, and from the man, God creates a woman for the man. That is Paul's point. So the woman wasn't created first to take care of the man. The man was created first to take care of the woman, and the woman taking care of the man. Now, interesting. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul brings up the same point But he says, and by the way, if this causes a little bit of problems, he says, men don't exist without women, and women don't exist without men. We are not independent of each other. 
so there. It's just like it's, a, it's not a problem of, well, you were made first or whatever. It's a, it's a thing where we are dependent on each other. So he's created first. He's male. He's the designated leader in the home and in the church. Now, here's an illustration of violating God's order. So he says here, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Here's what some commentators say. Men, women should not pastor because they have a proclivity or a vulnerability to spiritual deception. I don't necessarily think that's the point. And most commentators don't. They believe that what the verse is talking about is that she was deceived into breaking the order. She went above her husband and she went above God. And that's where the door opened to bringing man down, mankind down. Now, Eve was deceived, but Adam willingly disobeyed and sinned. I think the easier... Uh, the lighter sentence really in this whole thing is not the one who was deceived and misled, but the one with wide open eyes responsible to perhaps saving the day. Who knows? We were assigned condemnation in Adam. Eve opened the door. Paul's point, the Holy Spirit's point is when God's ways are uh, ignored, nothing good comes of it, you see? Whether that's in gender roles, sexuality, or church uh, governance, nothing good comes from uh, going against God's uh, gracious design. Now, Eve resisted God's authority structure and her daughters have to struggle a little bit with that. And God told Eve that, that you're always, women are going to have this issue now. Uh, but here's the good news. And I believe that's how to think about this next final verse. Eve, you're going to have a struggle submitting to your husband's authority. Uh, but listen, here's a paraphrase of this. Let me just say, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Of course he doesn't mean they will be saved like saved from hell because there's no conditions for salvation. It's trust in Jesus. There's no if this. Trust in Jesus. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's not talking about that. He's saying the word can mean to be kept safe or rescued. All right, so here's a paraphrase. But women will be kept safe from that kind of falling into that kind of trap as they embrace their valuable calling to bring life into this world, nurturing, raising children, and serving God in all faithfulness. Now, She may have been the first to step into death, but life comes through her. That every man in the world owes their 
existence to a woman. And so this is an, a way to end on an up note saying that, okay, women opened the door and something terrible happened, but it's through women that God brings redemption and the son of God through a woman, the seed of a woman. And so that's the context and the upbeat ending to say the Lord has redeemed women. They, don't, they are not to, to bear the label of, oh, no, look what Eve did, and that was the problem. Actually, it was Adam who's assigned the responsibility. And look at how God has protected and saved the woman, giving her this incredible place to bring life and to nurture sons into leaders, into pastors, into men who change the world through the woman who loves God. And that's the case. And, and I mean, I just started thinking about what the world owes to godly women, men. Ladies, don't let the lies of the evil one and the distorted views of the world trip you up about God's word and your valuable role. Think about the heroism of Deborah. You know, the guys couldn't do the job there in Israel fighting, and Deborah took charge, and man, she, she won the day. Courageous Jael, do you remember her? Oh, you will in a second. Tent peg, hammer. <laughs> the enemy, Sisera, she opened her tent and said, oh, you look tired. And he goes, yeah, I'm running for my life. She goes, I got just a place for you, a nice warm little cot over here. She puts him in the cot, the commander of the enemy uh, army. And she feeds him a warm cup of milk and puts him to sleep, takes a tent peg and puts it to his head and bam, (laughs) solves Israel's problems 100%. She is praised in the Bible. They sing songs about her. The zeal of Miriam, Moses' sister, who leads worship and prophesies. The faith and determination of Hannah, who gives us Samuel, the Bible hero. The stunning faith and credible testimony of Rahab, the ancestress to King David, and another king. Godly Ruth, the Moabitess, quite the testimony ancestress to the king of David comes through a woman. The courage and faith of Esther who put herself out there for the sake of a nation. The sacrifice and generosity of Joanna and Susanna. Do you remember them from Luke 8? These are women who followed the Lord and his disciples supporting them out of their own resources. Luke chapter 8. Yeah. Talk about women. The diligent hard work of Phoebe. Romans 16.1, Paul calls Phoebe a deacon. Deaconess? Okay. Elder pastor for men. The diligent, contemplative heart of Mary, Jesus' friend who sits at his feet, and that industrious serving machine, her sister Martha. The red-hot devotion of Mary Magdalene. Come on, she showed up all the boys. Mary Magdalene, the first witness of the Lord's resurrection. Jesus, risen Lord, 
Savior of the world has to turn to Mary and say, could you go tell the guys <laughs> that I've risen? Come on. A woman. A woman is the first. Because she's honored. She's valued. The quiet, gentle spirit of Mary, the mother of our Lord, from whom the seed of the woman would come, the Savior of the world. She may have taken the first misstep, but God used her to bring salvation to the world. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and thank you for this chapter that just speaks to all of our hearts. And thank you for your love. Now as we get ready to remember the cross and your great love for us, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to help us to grasp the wonderful love that you have for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.